I'm Michael Klein, Executive Editor of Econofact, a nonpartisan, web-based publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. At Econofact, we bring key facts and incisive analysis to the national debate on economic and social policies, publishing work from leading economists across the country. You can learn more about us and see our work at www.econofact.org. We've been very fortunate to have a panel of distinguished economic journalists join us for four previous episodes of Econofact Chats. Benjamin Applebaum of the New York Times, Scott Horsley of NPR, Greg Ip of the Wall Street Journal, and Heather Long of the Washington Post. We last spoke in December 2021. A lot has happened since then. The most dramatic and impactful event has been the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Along with the obvious geopolitical and humanitarian issues, this has also had an effect on the world economy by contributing to the spike in fuel and food costs. Partly as a consequence of this, but likely for other reasons as well, inflation in the United States is at a 40-year high. Since we last spoke, there is a resurgence of a new variant of the COVID virus, but with much of the country's population immunized or just tired of masking and social distancing, it certainly felt to many of us that there was less of a shutdown than at times of other surges. Although the preliminary numbers show a 1.4% decline in GDP in the first quarter of this year, which follows on the heels of a 6.9% increase in the last quarter of 2021. Payroll employment rose by over 430,000 in March, and the unemployment rate fell to 3.6%, the lowest rate since just before the pandemic began. The Fed is trying to engineer a soft landing to bring down the inflation rate, something that is notoriously difficult to do. Benjamin Scott, Greg, and Heather, welcome once more to Econofact Chats. Great to be with you. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. Let's start out with a bit of an overview. Scott, last month you were in a podcast episode titled, The Economy is Weird Right Now. The word weird doesn't come up much when I teach macroeconomics, but maybe it should. What did you mean by that? Well, I think you you got at this in the, in your introduction. You know, there are lots of measures that suggest the economy's in good shape. Uh, as you said, we've been adding jobs at a rapid clip. Unemployment's really low. Consumer spending, which is a major engine of the economy, has been humming along. Uh, it's it's true GDP contracted a bit in the first few months this year, but you know, last year the economy grew at the fastest pace since Ronald Reagan was in office. Considering all the shocks we've had to weather, you know, not only the pandemic, but now of course the war in Ukraine as well. The economy has proven surprisingly resilient, but you've also got this dark cloud, which is inflation. So even though paychecks are getting bigger, uh, people's real purchasing power is going down. That's why a lot of people tell pollsters they feel gloomy about the economic outlook. So inflation is at the highest rate in 40 years. Greg, what do you see as the various sources of inflation and their relative importance? So George Bernard Shaw once said to uh, get an economist, all you have to do is teach a parrot to repeat over and over supply and demand. 
And that is kind of the story of inflation, right? So inflation happens when demand exceeds supply. And we have very strong demand and very constrained supply right now. So they're both operating. The demand side is fairly well known. The economy like leapt out of the pandemic shutdowns, people going back to work, they wanted to spend, people wanting to like go back to stores and so forth. They had the fuel of the fiscal stimulus, extra checks, for example, stimulus checks, and the lowest interest rates in many years, making it very easy to borrow and driving up stock prices. So a very strong head of demand but then that collides with supply. Now, normally, like Michael, in your class, I'm sure you teach your students that supply curves uh, slope upwards, which is just another way of saying is that when demand increases, we see that usually manifests itself both in higher output and higher prices. But what we've had is a series of shocks to the global supply chains, which mean that, for example, in the case of automobiles, rather than making more cars because of a shortage of semiconductors, we're actually making fewer than before the pandemic. And all that extra demand is showing up not as more cars being sold, but as higher prices. What this means is that for inflation to come down, one of two things has to happen. Demand has to drop or supply has to improve. The Federal Reserve, by raising interest rates, is looking after the demand part of the equation. But what we'd really like to see is the supply side get a little bit better. But it keeps actually getting a little bit worse. Even as there was some sign of progress on all the disruptions caused by COVID, then you had Russia's invasion of Ukraine, which drove up commodity prices and has created artificial shortages of like many, many commodities, such as uh, wheat and, uh, and oil. So it's kind of like a wild guess as to exactly when these two differing uh, forces uh, shake themselves out. Well, in my class, I would call that a supply shift, not an upward movement, but that's excessively nerdy for this conversation, I think. Scott? We did say early on, that because people were changing the way they behave because of the pandemic, the, the demand shifted somewhat too. We had more demand for goods, less demand for services. There was this expectation in some quarters that as, as that normalized, as people started going back to consuming services, you know, going out to ball games and, and, and shows and traveling more and, and consuming less goods, that would that would help with the inflationary picture. But it doesn't seem to be working out that way. In fact, now it seems like the inflation is kind of spreading to the services sector. Benjamin, you had an article about six months ago in which you cite market power as one source of high prices. What did you mean by market power and how do you see this working out? You know, for for years uh, before the current crisis, we used to hear corporations complaining that they didn't have a lot of power to raise prices, that they essentially had to had profit margins by suppressing the cost of uh, compensation for employees uh, by getting more efficient, but that the market really wouldn't tolerate much upward movement in prices. And, and inflation has jarred that loose. We're now in a period where people do expect to pay higher prices, and they don't know exactly how much more they should be paying. And corporations have suddenly gained a lot of power to raise prices, both both to compensate for higher inflation, but also to pad profits. And, and so we see, you know, across a wide range of industries, corporate profit margins are up significantly. Strikingly, even though, you know, in an inflationary environment, you'd expect wage demands to be pushing up prices, much of the increase in prices is, is being taken as profits rather than going to employees. Wages are rising much more slowly than prices in this environment. And, and I think, you know, I, I've heard a compelling argument made by some economists that you can actually hear companies coordinating price increases when they get on their earnings calls, that they go out there and say, basically, uh, we are going to be raising prices. We have the power to do that in this environment and that other companies can hear a signal that, uh, you know, they also have the opportunity to raise prices. And, and corporate America has, to some extent, taken advantage of that environment uh, to pad its bottom line. Greg? 
I think as Benjamin said, there's no question companies have a lot of pricing power right now and they're definitely exploiting it. I think there's an open question right now as to whether they get that pricing power because of high concentration, monopolistic behavior that predated the crisis or a set of unusual circumstances that, that we're seeing right now. And I think you could fairly say there might be a little bit of both. The White House, for example, I think has fairly pointed out that the meatpacking industry is highly concentrated with just a handful of companies with a very large market share. And so you've seen meat prices go up more than, say, the price of eggs, which is not as concentrated. But on the other hand, it's also the case that when demand rises as quickly as it has, you simply cannot get new entries coming to the market fast enough to exploit that higher demand. And so it's very common for companies to have pricing power. Look at used cars. That's about as fragmented an industry as there is. In effect, everybody selling a used car, the millions of people selling the used car, is getting a windfall profit because it's so hard to meet the demand out there. I noted an earlier podcast that the price of meat had gone up by a lot, but dairy products had not gone up much at all. And I use that as a caution not to mix milk and meat. <laughs> Heather, one source of inflation is high energy prices. And you recently wrote an article called $4 Gas is Here. Get used to it. Do you think $4 Gas is here to stay in the long run? And how should we and why should we get used to it? Well, as many people listening to this may know, writers don't always get to choose their headlines. But um, <laughs> I would just say that piece appeared in the Washington Post on March 11th, the day that um, gas prices did hit a, a new record high, at least in nominal terms. And we'll see if we surpass that this summer. It's certainly possible. We've already done it in the last few days on the diesel side of the equation, which is pretty worrying. Um, I think basically, like in the big, big picture here, as Greg was saying, it all comes back to supply and demand. You know, gas prices are up about a dollar thirty to dollar forty, depending upon how you're comparing, what day you're comparing to a year ago. You know, just over half of that increase has happened since the war, the invasion of Ukraine, since the war started. And obviously, the White House has tried to really emphasize that message, but the Republicans are obviously stressing the other half of the equation, which was that gas prices were still up you know, quite a bit even before the invasion, and mostly for the demand factors that we've been talking about so far. I think what's um, important going forward is there's just very little to change this picture in the short term. Um, you know, we just don't have a lot of excess global supply of oil right now with Russia, you know, sort of being half off the, um, the supply system and OPEC's ongoing reluctance to really make up the difference. Particularly, I think a lot of people have been surprised that the Saudis just are not, you know, half the time aren't even taking President Biden's calls. Um, so, uh, and I, a surprise to me was to learn how much, how run down Venezuela is. Uh, infrastructure is. So I think the obvious solution for the United States was just to turn, you know, turn on more capacity in Venezuela, which just isn't possible. There's obviously a lot of calls. Another thing that's really been surprising to me as I look more into energy is um, the state of U.S. refineries. So there's all these calls, why don't we just drill more at home? And when you actually start looking at that solution, yes, it is feasible to increase some supply from the United States and Canada, uh, but our refineries are not built for that. You know, we, the United States and Canada produce largely a very light crude oil and our refineries were designed in many cases decades ago and they need uh, more of a mix of light and dark crude. And that dark crude was coming from Venezuela or from Russia in the last few years. 
And so, you know, we just, we either have to change our refineries or we have to get somebody else, you know, back on this market. And so I think there's just a real open question in the medium term, not just for the summer, are we going to see probably $4 gas being a pretty normal thing, but sort of what happens even heading into 2023. I think there's been a lot of frustration and rightfully so with the Biden administration that they're still not really laid out a big picture plan for energy. You know, they still sort of say, oh, you know, we've released from the Strategic Petroleum Reserve. We've done a few of these things to try to help in the next few weeks. But, you know, there's really no medium term plan for, you know, what does this look like? Are we hoping to produce more at home? Are we hoping to strike more deals with Venezuela or the Saudis or whomever? And, you know, and, and they're trying to walk this fine line of also still trying to uh, talk up their climate solutions. So, um so then anyway, I think there's just a lot of uncertainty around um, where the United States energy future is going. Obviously, the energy spike in March made up of half and you know, drove half of the inflation increase in March. Um, it could possibly you know, help inflation in April and then potentially hurt it again in May, June. I think this diesel price increase you know, will also start to flow through. Um, but I think the big, big, big picture here is really... What is the U.S. plan for energy? We still don't have a concrete plan. The EU has done a much better job outlining that. And second of all, this continues to hurt confidence. You know, the confidence, as we were talking about, of Americans in the U.S. economy is also one of these weird, strange factors that we can have a number of good economic um, indicators and yet still have confidence measures that look like we're in a recession. And a big part of this, unfortunately, is people driving by the gas stations and seeing these ongoing high energy prices. And if it were gas prices rising in isolation, you know, you'd think, well, that would in- encourage people to in- invest in more fuel efficient vehicles or maybe even electric cars. Uh, and, and you are seeing that. But of course, the high price of, of cars, both new and used cars, is, makes it makes it that much more challenging. Benjamin? I think the energy market is a really great example of, you know, the way that these dynamics play out differently in the short term and in the long term, because, you know, right now the supply of gas is what it is. Basically, there's, you know, fairly limited flexibility. The United States opened up its strategic petroleum reserve and put a little more gas into the market. But basically, you know, supply is constrained in the near term. But we have seen repeatedly that that industry has a remarkable capacity to increase production in response to increased demand. We invented an entire new industry called fracking. Uh, you know, the last time that long-term gas prices appeared to be headed higher, all of a sudden things were viable that had never been viable before. So I think, you know, if the question is, is $4 gas here to stay? I think one wants to be extremely cautious about predicting the supply side future of that industry, uh, setting aside the demand side questions about how effective we are in, in constraining the use of gas. Uh, you know, I think it's it's really hard to, to be confident in predictions about what the supply of gas is going to be in the long term. So as mentioned, the increase in energy prices has contributed to uh, inflation, but the pain of inflation is not going to be evenly borne by people. Scott, who do you think will be bearing the highest cost of inflation and who's going to be relatively lightly touched? You know, psychologically, everybody's infected, uh, affected by inflation. Everybody sees those gas prices. It, it affects people's attitudes about the economy broadly. Certainly for businesses, when they see their prices climbing, uh, their, the prices of their supplies climbing, 
uh, it affects their ability to plan and 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 make decisions. I remember talking to a, a steelworks uh, a company executive who, at one point, prices were going up so fast she was she was only offering quotes to her customers that were good till the end of the day. Uh, so, it, in in broad terms, when inflation is this high, it does affect everyone. But as is often the case. It's poor people who suffer the most. I mean, poor people are living close to the edge anyway. They tend to spend more of their income on essentials like gasoline and food that have seen some of the biggest price hikes. Uh, Low-income people have fewer opportunities to find bargains. They might not have the extra cash to stock up when things go on sale. Uh, they might not be able to buy in bulk and get volume discounts. It's just a sad fact of life that it's, it's expensive being poor. Uh, upper income people start out with more discretionary spending, so they have more room to cut back without feeling the same kind of pain. Upper income people are also more likely to own a house or own stocks that have been rising in value. And that, that wealth effect can mitigate some of the, the emotional pain of these rising prices. This is an area in which we need better data. I, I really think the government is falling down on the job in this area. You know, there, there was a lot of talk in recent years about the need for distributional GDP accounts for the government to publish data showing how economic growth affected different portions of the population. The same is true for inflation. The government has the capacity to do a better job of answering these kinds of questions. And it's an area in which we really need uh, better data showing not just what is inflation in the aggregate, but what is inflation if you're at the 20th percentile, what is inflation if you're at the 40th and the 60th and the 80th. These are knowable things that, that we're in the dark about to an extent that I think is unfortunate. Yeah, we, we quote an inflation rate for a basket of goods, and obviously different people of different income have very different consumption baskets, and as a result, they face different prices. So moving from inflation to GDP, another weird part of the economy has to do with the most recent GDP numbers that I cited in the introduction. Greg, you had an article in the Wall Street Journal that showed the 1.4% drop in the first quarter of 2022 masks, in fact, some underlying strengths in the economy. In fact, you call the numbers a head fake. What did you mean by that? Well, if you actually dig into the GDP report that came out, you see that the main areas of spending, like consumer spending and business investment, continue to grow extremely strongly in the first quarter. Why did output decline? Well, it's partly because a lot of that spending was not met by new production, but it was um, filled out of inventories or by imports, which do not show up in domestic production. So in some sense, that's why it's a headache. We know that imports and inventories are highly volatile parts of the national economic accounting system, and there's a good chance that will reverse in the future. The same month that GDP was supposedly declining, we were creating half a million jobs a month, and the unemployment rate was falling to near its lowest in 50 years. So there is absolutely no... Other, so if you were to compare the GDP numbers to the labor market numbers, I would sort of say the labor market numbers are a stronger picture of where the economy is, which is still very, very strong. A few days before we did this recording, we learned that the number of vacant, uh, open jobs, vacancies, reached a new all-time high. So the demand for labor is still extremely strong. Looking forward, though, the picture gets a little bit muddier. The consumer spending has been very strong, largely because we've been creating a lot of jobs. They've been paying very well. 
and there's been fiscal stimulus and low interest rates. All those things to a certain extent are fading or in fact going into reverse. So there's no more fiscal stimulus. That's all over. Uh, interest rates are now rising. In fact, the rise in the th- uh, 30-year mortgage rate in the last six months is the fastest of any six-month period since 1994. That will, with a lag, start to show up in things like uh, demand for housing and other durable goods. And finally, um, all those wage increases people are getting, as we were just saying a minute ago, are being eaten up by the higher cost of energy and other inflation. So you have a number of forces that are starting to operate on the consumer that I think suggests that the future will not be as rosy as the past. So you're pointing to the fact that the economy is likely strong, maybe too strong, and the task of slowing the economy to bring down inflation largely falls to the Federal Reserve. But that's a really challenging thing, to bring down inflation without causing a recession. Benjamin, what's the history of the Fed's ability to manage a disinflation without driving the economy into a ditch? Hmm, not great. Uh, if I could just add a caveat to the account Greg just offered. One, one interesting dynamic is that a lot of the money that got pumped into the economy hasn't been spent yet. Uh, a lot of it is still on the balance sheets of states. A lot of it has been saved by households. And one thing we've seen in recent months is that households have been drawing down those savings at a faster rate. So there's a, a cushion there. I mean, the dynamics that Greg just described are real, but it's not going to happen quite as fast as, as you might take away from that because there is this padding that also needs to be uh, spent down before, uh, before all of that stimulus is exhausted. Um, but with regard to the Fed, yeah, I mean, listen, it's not a great history. Uh, the Fed, when it starts to slow things down, is typically quite good at slowing things down, uh, and it tends to end up in a recession. Uh, the, I guess the two things I'd say about that are that, you know, when you look at the Fed's past record, you're just not talking about that large a library of historical episodes. And so you really want to be cautious about concluding that there are definite and, and predictable patterns. Uh, you know, the economy now is different than it was during those prior episodes. There are not, as, there are not that many prior episodes. I, I don't think this is a, a situation in which uh, we're fated to see a particular outcome. Uh, but the reality is that the Fed's tools are blunt. Uh, and when it starts raising interest rates, it is squeezing the economy generally. Uh, it is doing it, uh, you know, without, uh, you know, without the level of precision that you might want in an ideal world. And, and the effect is, is to restrain growth pretty dramatically. Uh, and the idea that you can restrain it exactly as much as you need to, to get inflation back where you want it, and not any more than that, not enough to put the economy uh, into, into a recession, uh, is something that that you know has historically exceeded the Fed's capabilities, uh, and you know just a- assessing you know the tools at its disposal is probably you know it, it requires luck as much as anything. Uh, it's not something that one should expect them to be able to do uh, as a matter of skill. They just don't have uh, the tools to do it. Well, there's a saying: it's better to be lucky than smart, but it's I guess best to be both. Greg, did you want to add something to that? Yeah, I would say that um, Fed Chairman Jay Powell this week put forth a theory about why they might actually uh, pull off a soft landing this time, even though the um, some of the pre-existing circumstances aren't favorable. One is that we're in a situation of extremely high demand that, in fact, if you look at, for example, the job market, there is roughly two job openings for every unemployed person. So one of the possibilities is that higher interest rates will reduce demand and that that reduced demand will show up uh, in fewer vacancies, perhaps employers try it with fewer openings, but not compelled to actually lay people off. 
if you, you know, a minute, a little bit earlier, I was discussing how we're actually selling fewer cars than two years ago, but there are long waiting lists for cars. What if uh, higher interest rates has the effect of reducing those waiting lists because some people decide they just don't need the car? You could actually get lower prices for cars without actually making fewer cars or selling fewer cars. So that's just, I think, you know, Binya pointed out that like the sample size for recessions and soft landings is very small. And, you know, statistically speaking, you want to be careful about drawing strong conclusions from such a small sample size. And this is one of the reasons why there are certain things that genuinely are different this time. In fact, the supply side, as you mentioned earlier, Greg, is also really important. And that's something that the Fed has no control over. So a lot depends on what happens in the Ukraine and what happens with COVID and things of that nature. Another weird part of the economy, or maybe not so weird, has been what's called the great resignation, people leaving the labor force in the wake of the COVID shutdowns. Heather, do you think the great resignation is real? And if so, who's been resigning? Or is it that some people have suggested that the great resignation is really closer to the great renegotiation? People want higher pay, better working conditions, would like to be able to work from home and so on. So we're in a period of renegotiation rather than resignation. What's your view of that? Yeah, well, I wrote about this about a year ago, and I called it the great reassessment of work. I also like the term great reshuffle. So I think there will be ongoing debates in the history books about what exactly to call this. But there's certainly it's undeniable that it's been going on. And it's I would say even I'm surprised at how strong it continues to be. We just got the latest data for March. And uh, at least the early estimate that we got for March is you know, more than 4.5 million people who left their jobs that month, most of them to go to another job. But that's a new high. <laughs> that's it's It could get revised, but it even topped what we saw in November. So the fact that it's still this strong, even in a month like March, when people you know, were reading news and riveted by this war in Ukraine and, and obviously the high gas prices and all of these things were going on that would su- seemingly shake confidence and make people look a little bit more concerned about their prospects, we still saw this huge surge in people trying to better their lives. Um, what do we know? We wish we knew more about who was quitting. The, the data from the government that we have certainly show that it's um, leisure and hospitality workers, retail workers. More recently this year, what's different than last year is we've seen a, a pretty big uptick in business services workers and construction workers who are leaving jobs. So I think that'll be an interesting trend to watch. Um, but this is still largely a low-wage worker phenomenon. The other thing that we've seen from polling data, which isn't always the best, but is that there's been a higher uptick in people quitting among women and among people of color. And I think that you know sort of plays in, unfortunately, to who has generally these low-wage jobs in hospitality. Um, but it's an encouraging sign that people are feeling, uh, different groups are feeling empowered. I think from I spent a lot of time you know tracing people, particularly in the hospitality sector last year, who were quitting jobs, and then in the manufacturing sector. And I would just say what st- stood out to me is pay is obviously a big part of what's going on. You know, people wanting to, who are in the $15 and under wanting to move into the $15 plus an hour category. But what's really striking is I would say in economics, we need to refine our model a little bit. People are definitely optimizing for a quote, better job, but it's not just pay. You know, when you interview people, they talk immediately about mental health and respect. 
and even there was some good Pew Research polling that came out in March that showed that while 63% of people who, who wanted to quit a job cited, you know, they thought their pay was too low and they wanted better pay, 57% also said they felt disrespected in their current job. And you just see that over and over again in polling data that this respect category is basically equal to, if not higher, and sometimes than the, the, the pure dollar amount that's on the paper. And, you know, it's, I think that's a real wake-up call to, um, to businesses, and you specifically see it among younger workers. Um, so I would say I'm a millennial, and even among my generation, you didn't see this need for mental health and respect and the way that you see it from a lot of 20-somethings who are in the labor market now. And I think we're still sort of beginning just at the early stages of understanding what does Gen Z and the generations that follow really want in the workplace? How different is it really? And they are much more likely to leave a job and they are much more likely, you know, to talk very openly. Like I want a mental health day. I'm going to take it off tomorrow. Or, you know, I, I felt really disrespected by what you said. You know, you need to change your behavior in a way that I don't think certainly my generation or older generations would have spoken back to a boss in that way. And so I think, Right now, it's playing out in the great reshuffle or reassessment of work or whatever you want to call it. But what does this mean longer term uh, for the labor market and for the future of work in America? I think um, it's going to be a very exciting and interesting research topic for years to come. Scott? I do think that the nature of the great reshuffle has, has changed during the course of the pandemic. Early on, you did see people at least temporarily leaving the workforce, maybe for caregiving responsibilities. Maybe their their uh, their loved ones were sick or their kids were doing homeschool. You're not seeing that so much now. You are seeing people leaving jobs to take other better jobs, better in one way or another, whether it's pay or conditions. But you're also seeing, I think, some employers getting the message now and, and working harder to keep the employees they have. So I think it, there's going to be opportunities for, for workers to improve their working conditions without necessarily going going someplace else and and so hopefully but but we're, we're definitely not seeing people in, in large numbers now leaving the workforce in fact we're seeing people coming back into the workforce uh, but insisting on on better terms can you mean? do so you know my hesitation about this narrative i, I guess I, i'm just not sure that what we're seeing is actually progress for workers in the grand scheme of things Employment conditions deteriorated dramatically for millions of Americans during the pandemic. People were miserable. They were being asked to do things that endangered them. They were being asked to work hours that, uh, you know, were unsustainable. They were being asked to, uh, you know, do their work in ways that, you know, put an enormous stress on their personal lives, uh, even as the demands of their personal lives often were increasing. And so what you had was a situation in which many people found their lives untenable. Uh, and they left uh, and they decided to, you know, do something else, uh, not necessarily because, you know, not not sort of in the nice narrative that they were jumping to, you know, uh, a better thing, but that they had to get out of the thing that they were doing. Um, and, you know, we see this in the pay data, too. Uh, you know, the, the broad story that people are getting better jobs. It, it's true that some low wage workers have seen uh, increases in pay. Uh, although importantly, those increases are, are not keeping up with inflation in recent months. Uh, but the labor share, the share of output that goes to workers in the form of pay has declined during this period. Uh, workers are getting less of the pie. Uh, 
Uh, and so this narrative that we're in an era of worker empowerment, I think it's misleading. I think that uh, the reality is that that workers in many ways are worse off than they were before the pandemic, and a lot of them are scrambling to limit the damage. So I've used the word weird multiple times in this broadcast, um, and these are weird and challenging times, but during times like these, it's especially great to be able to get insights from the four of you. So thanks to each of you for once again being my guest on Account of Fact Chats. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Great to be with you. This has been Econofact Chats. To learn more about Econofact and to see the work on our site, you can log into www.econofact.org. Econofact is a publication of the Fletcher School at Tufts University. Thanks for listening.